You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law with me. I'm Kyla Lee, your host, as usual. Paul Doroshenko is off uh, having far more fun than the rest of us in Disneyland this week. So uh, we have instead a very special guest uh, with us today is Ron Moore. And Ron is not just a lawyer but also a toxicologist. His story of of how he got to where he is is incredibly interesting, and his expertise in particular, um, for all of our listeners, is related to cannabis impairment and the uh, absorption, elimination, and distribution of THC in the body. So a huge issue that we have a lot of interest in here in Canada. So thank you for joining us, Ron. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, any any time. I I saw you. We met in Philadelphia, and I saw you give a presentation there that just uh, kind of blew my mind. Philadelphia was a great conference. I enjoyed meeting you there, and uh, I I enjoyed putting on that presentation. Yeah. So uh, you were telling me before I called you um, about how you got into toxicology. Um, do you want to share that story for the listeners? Sure. Uh, like so many of my biology major colleagues, we all wanted to be doctors when we grew up. And at the nearing the end of my undergraduate education, I realized that I was probably not destined for medical school and was looking for alternatives when the university I was at had a nice seminar for those of us who were in that situation. And they had people from pharmaceuticals and biotechnology, and they had a speaker from the local crime lab come out and I was hooked. I was fascinated by the idea of using my science education in a way that would help society and, and solve crime and all that. So I went and did an internship at the local crime lab, was hired as a lab tech, and then ultimately hired by a different crime lab way back in 1989 as a forensic scientist and stayed at the uh, crime lab there for a little over 18 years. Wow. During the 18 years that I was there, I started in toxicology, I transitioned to uh, the blood alcohol section fairly quickly and was there for a number of years, and we did all of the blood and uh, urine alcohol analysis uh, for a fairly large county here in California, did thousands of uh, blood alcohol analysis every year. Um, We also trained all the police officers in how to do uh, breath alcohol testing in the field and maintained all the breath alcohol testing instruments. And I also spent three years analyzing drug samples. I spent uh, a number of years doing firearm and tool marks, and I did uh, about six years of homicide investigation, and then returned back to alcohol as the supervisor of that section uh, until I finally left the lab um, in 2007. So you were getting, like, you were in toxicology right as they were sort of introducing things like the drug recognition evaluation and then the you know the blood and urine testing for drugs that would go along with that right now the the drug recognition expert program started in los angeles that was uh, a product of the los angeles police department and they developed that program back in the late 1970s it was formally adopted by lapd in 1979 and then they sought to expand the program and, and get it more national attention. They brought it to the attention of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration here in the States. And NHTSA took a look at it, 
They adopted it in 1986, and the International Association for Chiefs of Police then uh, came in in 1989, and that was about the time that I got into the crime lab. So that's when the program started going national was in the, the late 80s, about the same time that they were uh, doing some of the initial uh, work on standardized field sobriety tests. Wow. So did you did you get to be like right there as it was as it was becoming national and have some influence on that? Or was that sort of uh, outside the scope of what you were working on? Uh, I don't think I had any direct influence on uh, the DRE program and its development. It was developed largely by uh, a couple of sergeants in the traffic bureau of LAPD that realized that they were having a hard time gathering convincing evidence in the DUI drug cases and were looking for a solution that they could develop to present to prosecutors. And at least initially, it was more police-driven than science-driven. Right. Okay. Now, in I was telling you in Canada, um, we're about to have cannabis legalization. And going along with that is blood drug concentration um, limits. So for anybody who's driving, um, a mandatory legal limit of two and a half nanograms per uh, 100 milliliters of blood of THC. And you were surprised by that number. Yes, uh there was initially, in, in the, over the years that we've been doing toxicology on marijuana, a lot of efforts to try to figure out a per se limit for THC intoxication because the people wanted it to be like alcohol. You know, alcohol is a, a, a model for impaired driving, and it's probably the most common drug people abuse, uh, and it impairs their driving and makes, uh, makes things unsafe. So people say, all right, we have a model already for alcohol. Why don't we just try and treat drugs the same way? We'll figure out what the amount of drug is that's equivalent to where we prohibit alcohol intoxication, and everything will be fine. And so there were a lot of early efforts to do that, and you know, numbers were brought up of you know, two or five or whatever the number happens to be, or zero tolerance in some places. Uh, but more recently, with more and more uh, toxicology having been done, we've come to the realization that you really can't put a number on intoxication from THC because there's so much variability involved. You know, picking a number and setting a limit, on the one hand, there are certainly people who could be impaired below the number. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there are going to be people who are not impaired who are above the number. Now, THC has a very long half-life which means that it goes away very slowly in, the, in your bloodstream. And the effects of the drug, though, typically only last uh, when you smoke it for, you know, three to six hours. So, you know, the next day you may still have THC present, especially if you're a chronic user, uh, somebody who is enthusiastic about smoking, uh, may have <laughs> THC in user. their blood for a, or a medical user, uh, may have THC in the system for a much longer time period beyond which they are suffering from any impairment. And so it seems like if the goal of the legislation is to reduce impaired driving, they're catching a lot of people that aren't impaired at the same time. Now, THC also is stored in your fat cells, so it can be... It is. Uh, THC is a very what we call lipophilic. It, it likes to be in uh, lipids or in fat cells. And so when you smoke THC... The THC levels go up very high, very quickly. You know, some people peak out even before they finish smoking. Uh, 
um, some users will kind of titrate their dose as they're smoking to get the effect they're looking for, and so they may even peak before they're finished smoking. Um, but typically you peak either while smoking or very shortly thereafter um, at a rather high level, and then over the next 30 to 60 minutes you drop as the THC is distributed into the fat cells, and then it comes back out over time, and so you have a much longer, slow elimination phase. So it's kind of like a two-phased uh, elimination. And so are people, when, when they have that, when they have that sort of, you know, second phase of elimination, are they experiencing, sorry, are they experiencing impairing effects from the, from the THC at that point? Does that affect them in any way? Well, it does, um, but only for a certain length of time. And so uh, one of the things that I presented at the meeting in Philadelphia was a congressionally mandated report on marijuana-impaired driving, and one of the things that Dr. Compton reported in that study was that the most severe driving impairment seems to be about 90 minutes after smoking, even though the most significant uh, subjective effects, the feeling of high, happens very shortly after you finish smoking. So you can still experiencing the, experience the impairing effects of the THC even at points where the blood THC levels have dropped substantially because it's the THC in the brain that is causing the impairment as opposed to what's in the rest of the bloodstream. Right. And it takes some time for the THC to peak in the brain because of how fat-soluble it is. And how would you measure the THC in somebody's brain? Would you do like a spinal tap? or? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think we have a way to do that currently, and that's maybe part of the problem with trying to figure out uh, what somebody's experiencing in terms of impairment from THC is that we can't get to the place where it's having its effect. Mm -hmm. And because the blood levels in the brain or the THC levels in the brain are going to be different than they are in the blood, uh, we're kind of at a loss uh, for having a direct measurement, contrary to like it is with alcohol. Alcohol is very water-soluble, and so the, the concentration is going to be pretty equivalent uh, throughout the body. And so we're, we don't have that same difficulty with alcohol. And alcohol is just so much more predictable than THC is in terms of, of quantifying its effects. You know, alcohol, uh, THC is much more subject to developmental tolerance. Do, now, do you think that part of the reason that alcohol is so predictable is because we've had so much more time to do research on it and its effects? Or is it, is it literally just inherent in the substance itself? It has to do with the differences in how the drugs uh, affect the body. Alcohol has a more physical effect. It's at a membrane level, so it gets into the membranes and affects the fluidity of the membranes. It may also have some effect at the GABA receptor, but most other drugs act specifically at some cellular receptor uh, in the nervous system or other places, but for the psychoactive drugs in the nervous system that has some normal activity. So, for example, there are drugs like methamphetamine that act at the dopamine receptor. There are drugs like THC, which acts at specific cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, in the nervous system. As you expose your body to these drugs, the body will change the, the receptivity of the receptors or the number of receptors, they'll upregulate or downregulate the receptors, and so it changes your experience of the drugs, and you develop tolerance to them. And, but because, like I said, alcohol has a more physical effect on membranes, 
it has that effect and it's more difficult to develop the, some of the tolerance to it. Right. And that's why you can see, you know, people who are, you know, the hardcore alcoholics who drink a Mickey every day or whatever the case may be, probably more than that. <laughs> if I think back um, to people I know, yeah. um, uh, but they still well, the, have the physical impairment. Um, right. But so there, there is some development of tolerance to alcohol. You know, I couldn't possibly drink as much alcohol as some people do that are chronic alcoholics. But by the same token, there are some things that it's just very difficult to develop tolerance to when you're dealing with alcohol. Right. And what about what about like the method of ingesting um, ingesting cannabis? Like with alcohol, I mean, really, there's only one traditional way that most people take it in. But with cannabis, people can eat it, they can smoke it. There's like the vaporized forms. Does that change how your body reacts to it and how your body processes it? Um. To a certain extent, when you're dealing with smoked cannabis, it goes in through the lungs. Uh, even the vaporized cannabis goes in through the lungs, and you get the the spike in THC blood concentrations. Whereas, if it's coming in through the gastrointestinal tract, it comes in much more slowly, and some of it is digested, so we don't get as much of it. But it still has an impairing effect on you. Uh, but that effect may be drawn out, um, and your THC levels will never get nearly as high as they do when you smoke it. Um, so it becomes more complicated to try and predict when and how much of an effect you're going to see depending on how the person ingested the THC. See, and I find that fascinating when you look at, you know, the government creating these regulations where they want to put a number on impairment because if you if you eat it, you might not even get to that, you know, we have like two offenses. We have a to use your American terms, like a misdemeanor and a a felony. And at the felony level, you wouldn't get to, um, you wouldn't usually get to those levels eating the cannabis. So, but you'd, you know, in my own experience, (laughs) be way more impaired and for longer. Right. And that's the concern is that, you know, people who may have what we would normally consider a culpable uh, behavior or a culpable impairment wouldn't be caught by the law uh, because they're under what the statutory limit would be, and yet they're still potentially dangerous drivers. Um, But on the other hand, there are individuals who, you know, in their enthusiastic use of the product uh, could have levels above that beyond which they're impaired. You know, I'm thinking of one particular study that was done on uh, a number of chronic users that were in a uh, locked uh, treatment ward and even 72 hours after the last exposure, when the THC levels had dropped down below that level, individuals spiked THC levels above that level. And one person at 72 hours spiked a level back up to 11 nanograms. Which is and crazy. So you would be at that point subject to felony, even though you hadn't had any for 72 hours and wouldn't theoretically be impaired at that point. Um, and does the brain, like when, when the person in that situation spikes back up to 11 nanograms, does the brain feel the effects of that, or is that all gone from the brain? Well, that's not entirely clear. Uh, they weren't doing impairment research on those individuals at the time, so we don't have any measurement from them. Right. There are some studies that show that uh, there are some residual impairment in chronic users for a long period of time. We're not sure if that is entirely due to lingering THC levels or if it's caused by some other lingering effect in the users. And there's also the question of how much impairment do you need to have before it actually makes a difference in driving. Uh, 
because we can measure impairment in what we call driving-related tasks like divided attention skills and complex reaction time and things in laboratories that may not actually have a practical impact on crash risk. Really? Can you, can you expand on that? Well, certainly. Um, if you look at some of the, the crash risk studies, and I was actually just looking at three of them today, uh, there are a number of studies that have found that merely the presence of THC in your system doesn't increase crash risk. So, for example, the, in the report to Congress that mentioned one of the most recent major case control studies that was done in Virginia Beach here in the United States, where they looked at, uh, where did I just have that study? They looked at a large number of crashes, and over 3,000 crashes and about 6,000 control drivers, and estimated the frequency or the, the crash risk from both alcohol and from drugs, and they found a crash risk uh, from alcohol that increased with increasing alcohol level, but for THC, once they'd controlled for the demographic factors like age and gender and alcohol use, there was no crash risk from marijuana. Right. So I think, yeah, I think you said something when, when I watched your presentation that the equivalent crash risk for being, you know, on cannabis is about the same as being like a, a male in your 20s. Well, and that's one of the, the, the things is that if we take the sober driving population, not everybody drives the same. Um, no. <laughs> some individuals like young male drivers are naturally at a higher risk of getting into an accident just from being young male drivers, which is why they're so much more expensive to insure. Um, but if you control for that, uh, they also happen to be people that are more likely to use marijuana. You have to control for that factor because their crash risk would elevate marijuana crash risk estimates if we didn't control for that. So that's why it's important to properly control when you're doing uh, crash risk estimates. But that's not the only uh, type of crash risk study that can be done. There was another one that was done uh, back in, where's the study, 2013, where they looked at data from the fatal accident reporting system here in the States. They looked at over 1,700 crashes and over 3,000 control drivers and found uh, you know, there again that there was no increase in crash risk from marijuana. And then another study looked at 2,500 crashes where the police officers had done an investigation and they reanalyzed those crash reports with an objective standard for what's called culpability, is who's responsible for the accident, who was at fault, mm -hmm. and determined that the people who had marijuana in their system were actually less likely to be at fault for the accident than the sober population. Really? Wow. That's so, amazing. You know, we should all just get high are, and drive then. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I'm not saying that. The, you know, it's, it's obvious that marijuana can impair driving. Um, there are lots of other studies that look at crash risk and lots of studies that break down driving skills into its component parts like divided attention skills that show us that THC does definitely impair. And the question is, is just because it impairs people, does it really make a difference once they get on the road? Because one of the things that we've seen is that um, people who are impaired by marijuana a lot of the time recognize or realize that they're impaired and they try and compensate. They may drive slower, leave longer following distances, as opposed to the situation with alcohol where people don't generally realize they're impaired. One of the things that alcohol impairs is your ability to tell that you're impaired. Right. And so 
people above the legal limit oftentimes don't realize how impaired they are and they're ready to go out and drive and don't recognize it and don't compensate for it. And so they're much more dangerous out there on the road than the people who have had the, the THC who recognize it and allow for it. And as far as like the actual like sort of psychomotor performance um, and the, the physical acts of driving, as I understand, really the sort of most common thing that you would see in somebody behind the wheel who had uh, had marijuana or cannabis in their system is, is usually like just weaving within the lane. Is, am I wrong about that? Well, there's a, it depends on how you look for it. You know, there's been a number of studies that looked at, uh, for example, uh, DRE reports of uh, DUI marijuana cases and categorized all the different reasons why they were stopped. Oh. <laughs> and a large number of people end up getting stopped for speeding, um, and the cop walks up, smells marijuana, and they end up doing a DUI investigation, the person gets arrested. So speeding is very common, but uh, weaving is right up there with it. Okay, and, and is, is speeding like of, related to the cannabis, or is it just because everybody speeds? Well, I think it's just because everybody speeds, but as soon as the, the officer gets up to the car window and smells marijuana, they're going to do a DUI investigation. And so you end up with uh, things that aren't necessarily being caused by the marijuana being associated with the marijuana because the officer you know, recognizes the signs of marijuana use and proceeds with the DUI investigation, even though that wasn't why the person was stopped. That seems like it would make it very difficult from like a sort of a scientific perspective to look at you know, look at all of that data and identify where cannabis actually affects somebody in their ability to drive and where it's just either officers using the, oh, he was weaving in his lane as a pretense to stop somebody, which we know they do all the time, um, or using sort of normal driving behavior as a justification. Right. And one of the studies that really hasn't been done that ought to be done is something like NHTSA did, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration did for alcohol, and look at lots and lots of, of DUI stops where, you know, you got people who we know are over the, the legal limit, and look at the reasons why they were stopped and the frequency with which those people turned out to be over the, the legal limit, and we recognize what the signs are that specifically relate to you know, inability to control a motor vehicle versus the signs that are not so often associated with being under legal, uh, being over the legal limit, like speeding. Um, but the problem we run into there is that since there isn't a good association between THC levels and driving impairment, you, you, we're back at that, you know, two nanogram, five nanogram problem that the number doesn't tell us whether the person's impaired. Um, so we can look at the reasons why people are stopped that end up getting arrested, um, but those inc include all the cases where the officers stop people for things that weren't suspicion of impaired driving until the officer got up to the to the car and, and recognized signs of, of marijuana use. Right. And now you're in California. How California has legalized cannabis, or I guess illegally illegal legalized it? I don't know how you describe the, the state situation of legalization there, but... Um, what have what sort of outcomes have they seen in relation to driving and, and crashes? Have you been keeping track of that? Well, I know we're keeping track of it. I don't know that we've got good data out yet because it's still very new. And so it's going to be a little bit of time, like it was in Colorado and Washington, before we have some good data to see if it's made a big difference. 
But one of the things you have to be really careful about in evaluating that kind of data is, again, making sure we control for the frequency in the population because if there's a, a large increase in people using marijuana, just the normal background rate of accidents, you're going to see an increase in marijuana associated with accidents because there's that many more people just using marijuana. Right. That you'd expect, you know, it's going to be there. We're just so. purely random. They're going to be, you know, it'd be the same thing if, if everyone decided to be blonde. You'd suddenly notice an increase in blonde people having accidents <laughs> um, just because the frequency in the population went up. Right. So, you know, we've, we've got to look a little deeper than just the frequency. And is that why, is that why, like in Washington and in Colorado, we've seen sort of this initial spike in, you know, accidents related to cannabis use, followed by it sort of leveling off after a year or so? Yeah, I think part of it is the, again, I, I think there's going to be a certain background rate of, of accidents that just normally happen. And if there's suddenly a larger population of the, a larger portion of the population is using marijuana, you're going to see it reflected in the, in the, uh, the crash statistics. But I think that the novelty kind of wears off after a while, that there are people that, mm-hmm. you know, once it's legal, were, you know, stigmatized by the, the illegality of it, decide they want to try it, they realize it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal, and don't smoke much anymore, uh, and it levels off. So I think the novelty will have a spike, and then, you know, it'll just fall back into the background. And it may go up some, uh, because, like I said, there is definitely some impairment from marijuana, but I, don't, I think that you know some of the hysteria may be a little overblown based on some of the studies that show that the you know properly controlled for demographics the crash risk is not what uh, some people have been led to believe. So now you have a background as a lawyer and as a toxicologist, and you've worked uh, at, a, at a sheriff's department. So you've you've worked all sides of the issue. If you were to craft a law related to cannabis and impaired driving that you thought was perfect, and this is, I know, a hard question. <laughs> what would you write? How, how would you do it? Well, you know, I don't know that we can do it yet because um, we don't have the one thing we really need, mm-hmm. and that is an objective measure of impaired driving. And I think we're getting close to it. Uh, there's been some more research recently into, you know, how do we define when driving is impaired? You know, we've done a lot of research on breaking down the driving task and looking at what the various components are in terms of the perception, the reaction time, the execution, the cognitive processes, divided attention, all the things that have to go on to drive safely. You know, when you look at some of the different driving studies, when we're talking about marijuana impairment, there's lots of different ways we looked at it. We looked at standard deviation of you know, lateral position, which is the weaving. We look at standard deviation of speed. We look at lane incursions and uh, response to unusual uh, events. There's lots of different ways that we can measure impaired driving. We've got to come up with a standard and says, all right, you know, it's going to be this much standard deviation of lateral position. Once you start weaving this much, you're too dangerous to be on the road. Now let's look at what can we correlate with that that we can actually measure. Right, Uh, because you don't want to to stop people when they're they're deviating that much. You want to get them before. Well, yeah, but you also want to do it objectively and not have it be just a very subjective, well, we know we see it, we want to have something we can actually measure. And, you know, we were hoping the field sobriety test could do that, but they haven't really panned out to be uh, effective in that regard with regards to drugs. So we're looking at, you know, some kind of maybe handheld computerized test that we can give somebody that's going to measure some of those skills, reaction time and divided attention skills and things that we can say, all right, if you don't do this well, you probably ought not to be driving, Um, 
And if it's associated with the presence of drugs, then we can just, you know, you know, maybe we'll have some baseline level for people that uh, when they get their driver's license, they got to take the test that shows their baseline divided attention skills or reaction time skills or whatever. So we can tell when they're impaired, right. whether it's by fatigue or drugs or other things as well. When you're weaving on the road and you, you can't do these tests, you're probably too impaired to be out there. So but, like when you, know, you go would, to renew your license, you could take the test and establish your baseline and then... right. When you're and then stopped, you if can... you're stopped for some reason that the officer suspects you may not be up to snuff, they could give you a test that would actually measure that. I think that would be ideal, but we're not there. Uh, you know, but I worry that you know the per se limits are catching people that shouldn't be and not catching people that should be. You know, the alternative is to have it be more vague and just say, well, you you know you shouldn't be driving when you're not safe, and well, how do we tell when you're not safe and to a certain extent, that's got to come from the driving itself and observation to the officer, people that uh, report in that you're just not driving the way we expect people to be able to drive for whatever reason. Then, you know, whether it's weaving or, or stopping inappropriately or whatever it is that it causes someone to call in and say, this person's not driving right. Or when an officer observes them and sees the person's not driving right and does the investigation that is consistent with drug use and finds the drugs in levels that would be consistent with impairment. You know, at, at the present time, it's got to be kind of a totality of the circumstances. There's not one component that, that overrides, but you got to have evidence in the driving that the person's not driving well, that there's symptoms consistent with drug use, and that there's drugs present in the system that concentrations would be consistent with impairment. And that, I think, is as good as we can get right now. Right. What we're doing in Canada, we're we're using the drug recognition evaluation. Doesn't require any evidence of bad driving, but just the you know the twelve steps of the DRE plus the presence at any concentration of the drug identified by the DRE in the system. And as long as you have those two things, so the failed tests and then the and the presence of the drug identified by the officer, um, it's presumed that you were impaired by that drug in the absence of any evidence to the contrary. What, what do you think of that? Well, I, again, I'm concerned that the foundational research that would establish that as catching the people you want to catch hasn't been done. Mm -hmm. That there really hasn't been a study to show that if you don't pass the DRE exam, whatever that means, that you're impaired in your ability to drive safely. And that correlation hasn't been done. And so I'm concerned that, you know, absent a proper scientific foundation, we're just assuming that that's the case. And we may be catching people uh, or convicting people for, you know, a crime that really doesn't have a basis in fact. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, welcome to my echo chamber. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, I think that the way we've gone about um, dealing with the impaired driving angle of cannabis legalization in Canada has been really backwards. How are they doing it in California? Well, we don't have a per se standard in California. We're one of the Smart. states that doesn't. And our under the influence statute is basically patterned after the common law under the influence statute for alcohol, uh, which has a rather vague, in my opinion, uh, definition of when a person's impaired, which is that if you are unable to drive with the caution characteristic of a sober person under the same or similar circumstances, then you're too impaired to drive safely. Uh, well, you're, you're considered under the influence uh, of the drug for the purpose of driving, um, which, you know, to another lawyer, sounds a little bit like a negligence standard when you yeah, get to, you know, <laughs> under the same or similar circumstances kind of language. Um, 
But at least with alcohol, there are some other related statutes uh, and case law that kind of tell us when that level of caution goes away. There are presumptions in the law that says that you're presumed not under the influence at under 0.05. And between 0.05 and 0.08, there's no presumption, and we're presumed under the influence over 0.08. So, um, and our California Supreme Court has said that 0.08 is the threshold at which a person becomes unsafe due to the consumption of alcohol. So, you know, when I talk to juries or I talk to people about, well, how much caution do you have to have? It's like, well, that amount of caution that you would have up to 0.05 lose between 0.05 and 0.08 and beyond 0.08 you haven't largely got it anymore um you know that's how much caution you have to lose and we can also because alcohol is much more predictable we can look at the change in crash risk with blood alcohol level and the crash risk below 0.05 is consistently under two um so if you're looking at crash risk less than two you know that's still having enough caution to drive similar to the rest of the population when you get above two and, and more than higher than two, uh, up to where you know the point oh eight is, you know that's where we start to worry. And above the crash risk at point oh eight, you know we're, we're saying that's too much crash risk because we can't correlate THC levels to crash risk. We can't do that with with marijuana. So that leaves us uh, with a little bit of quandary as to how to figure out when somebody under the influence of marijuana lacks that caution. And then, I, I, like I said, I think it has to come down to driving performance and the rest of the totality. Okay. But at least a, a, a more sensible approach, it seems, is being taken in California than here. Right. But that's not the case in every state. You know, you no. look at a place like Oklahoma, where it's basically zero tolerance for even inactive metabolites in the urine, uh, and you only have to have the keys in your hand and sitting in the car. So, you know, it's not the same throughout the states. Now, you mentioned inactive metabolites in the urine. There is a difference between what you're testing for when you're testing somebody's urine versus their blood, right? Right. And if you're testing blood, it's what's affecting the person when you take the blood. If you're testing urine, it's what the body has eliminated. And so it's no longer affecting you once it's in your urine. Uh, the analogy I use is kind of like looking in the trash can for beer bottles and saying the person's drunk. Uh, <laughs> but you don't know you when know, they put those beer bottles in the trash. Yeah, you don't know when the beer bottles got there or whether there's any alcohol left in their in their bloodstream. All you know is that they had some previously. And is there like is there a way to with with THC? Can you when you look for the inactive metabolites in the urine? Can you say based on this amount of metabolite at this time the THC concentration of the blood was X, Y, or Z? Um, if there is, I'm not aware of it. I've not seen any research that would enable us to do that. So then testing for THC or or its metabolites in the urine would be a really bad way to say whether or not somebody was actually impaired or even on cannabis at the time of driving. Right. No, I I don't think you should use urine for that purpose. Uh, Urine doesn't tell you whether the person's under the influence. It only confirms prior exposure. Right, and prior exposure at any concentration, regardless of impairment. Right, you you can't tell what the concentration was in the blood from what you end up with in the urine. Well, that's really, I mean, that's really interesting because we, in in Canada, the police are permitted to take blood or urine at the end of the drug recognition evaluation, and the information that I've been given um, from the... Um, Uh, from the police that I've talked to is that they're not going to be doing the blood draws because they don't like the idea of, you know, taking someone they think might be on drugs and sticking them with a needle, which frankly is a lot of common sense as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're going to be using urine. 
um, to confirm the DRE opinion and then use that as the presumptive basis for conviction. Wow, that doesn't seem appropriate to me. Okay, well, <laughs> all right, so I'm not completely, like, scientifically off basis in thinking that this is insanity. Ah, well, it, it, it seems to me you know, to, to lack a firm scientific foundation. Like I say, you know, the urine doesn't tell you what the person's experiencing at the time. It's, it's a historical what has been in the body, but it doesn't tell you what the person's experiencing now. You really need a blood test to tell you what the person's got in their system right now. And, you know, there's still the problem of most of the time when you're drawing blood, there's a delay between the driving and uh, the blood test that, you know, you're going to have a different level in the blood at the time of a blood test than you would have been at the time of driving. And, you know, even though we can't correlate THC levels with uh, impairment, uh, you know, it, it's still, I see, I think, better to have a number out of the blood than it is to look for it someplace where it really doesn't have any relevance. Right. And what about the presence of other cannabinoids? Because, you know, there's, uh, I think, 113 different cannabinoids, and you have some that are non-impairing, some that mitigate the effects of, of impairment from THC. What do you say to tests that only look for THC? Well, THC is the main psychoactive ingredient, and while the other ones may have effects, we're probably still too early in the research to know what's, what is predictive from those. It's kind of like an active area of research. I just read another article about that today that was talking about um, looking at other cannabinoids as markers of recent use um, and the fact that we just haven't done enough research yet uh, to develop methods of detection and to uh, look at, you know, how long those last, whether they would make good markers of recent use. Um, one of the proposals that I had seen was to use, like, cannabidiol as uh, a marker of recent use, but then there's high-potency CBD oils and, and other CBD products with high potencies. You don't know how long that's going to last in the system, so, you know, we're, we're not there yet. So, while that may at some point in the future become a viable technique, I don't think it's ready for prime time. Right. Okay. And, like, do you do, besides just the sort of the, the paper research, do you yourself do any of the, the physical research, like drawing the blood samples and testing these things and measuring impairment? Is that something you're interested in or you do? Um, interested in, yes. Do it, not exactly. Um, the area that I'm actually currently doing research in is in sober performance on field sobriety tests. And so one of the recent uh, pieces that I did was gathering uh, time estimation uh, from sober subjects to compare to a, a body of data that I have on subjects that are under the influence of alcohol at various blood alcohol levels to oh, wow. see you know, whether there's um, a statistically significant difference in performance in time production between sober individuals and people under the influence because one of the problems that I have with the standardized field sobriety test battery is that there isn't a really good data set for the normal population. Mm -hmm. And so if we're saying, well, you know, two clues on these tests means that they're more likely to be uh, at or above a certain uh, blood alcohol level, it's like, well, but compared to whom? You know, who are we comparing to to, to say that? You know, and what factors other than alcohol or other drugs could contribute to somebody's performance? You know, and to the 
FST manuals talk about the fact that in the original research, which was done back in 1977, uh, that people more than 50 pounds overweight or, or over 65 years old had difficulty performing the balance tests. It's like, well, all right, but what other conditions should we be worried about? And, and you know, is it just over 55? Or I've seen one other article that talked about people over 40 having difficulty. What things should we be concerned about in the normal population? And how frequently in the normal population do people not do well on the balance and coordination tests? Uh, so I would like to develop a larger body of sober data on the field sobriety test so we know what the background rate is. You know, I've seen estimates as high as 25% of people fail two out of three of the standardized tests, you typically walk and turn in one leg stand, um, totally sober. And so I think that needs to be evaluated or, or available to people who are evaluating field sobriety tests, especially like in the, in the context of a court trial. So when people are coming in and saying, well, these failing this test means X, it's like, well, 25% of the population can't do them normally. Mm -hmm. So does it really mean that? Wow. Okay, that's important research. <laughs> when you're done that, I would love to uh, read your read your findings. Um, now, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are uh, people who are in very involved um, in the cannabis sort of industry and scene here in, in Canada. If they wanted to reach out to you to either hire you to do some research or get your opinion on some work that they're doing, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, the website is www.ronaldlmore.com, R-O-N-A-L-D-L-M-O-O-R-E.com. And I'm not doing too much traveling out of the, uh, the state right now. I've got a, a child at home that I intend to be a, a present father figure for. So I'm not running around the country testifying or doing other stuff, but I'm more than willing to talk to people on the phone. Um, okay, perfect. To help them Are out. you on Twitter? Do you have any social media you want to plug? <laughs> uh... You know, I've got a Twitter account and Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, but I don't use it that much for the business. I do have right. my Impaired Driving Toxicology Facebook page that I post uh, interesting uh, articles that I find in the news about toxicology subjects. Uh, so you can find me at Impaired Driving Toxicology on Facebook. Perfect. So that's about uh, the extent of my social media contributions. I, <laughs> I, have a lot of, I spend most of my time at my nose in an article. That's that, and that's you know that's good because the work that you're doing clearly is very important. And I I want to thank you so much for taking uh, the time out of your evening to speak with me. I think I like totally like bombarded you at the uh, end of the seminar because I was so excited after your presentation. So sorry about freaking you out. <laughs> but uh, I just I everything that you've said is so valuable and such important information for everybody um, in Canada who's petrified uh, in advance of legalization. So thank you so much, Ron. Well, I, I think you're entering into kind of a brave new world legally, and you know, I, I sympathize with the people who are concerned about the traffic safety effects, um, but I also sympathize with the people who don't want to be made criminals for behavior that maybe shouldn't be criminal uh, without you know, proof that you're actually dangerous drivers. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Canada handles it because we've got 50 different approaches here in the States and, you know, we're, we're trying to work it out for ourselves. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much to Ron Moore for joining us on the Driving Law podcast. That was probably the most 
in-depth information about cannabis-impaired driving that you can find on a legal podcast out there. I'm just going to make that claim now. I, I'm going to say that's the case. Um, and I, I challenge anyone to link to a podcast that has more in-depth information on cannabis-impaired driving because if it's out there, I want to hear it. So if you do have one, send it to me. Um, after I stopped recording with Ron, he also told me that he's going to prepare a bibliography with uh, the citations for all of the studies that he has referred to in the podcast today. So you're actually going to get the opportunity to be able to find the studies that Ron referred to that support the points that he's making, uh, which is amazing and an amazing resource. And I really thank Ron for putting together uh, that bibliography and the time and effort uh, that it takes to do that because I, I super appreciate it. And I know that all of our listeners do too. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and if you need to get in touch with me, you can reach me at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or on uh, Facebook at, what is it, uh, Acumen Law, I think, <laughs> and on Twitter at IRP Lawyer, and uh, you can call me on the phone at 604-685-8889. Tune in next week for another exciting episode with more driving and law-related content. <laughs>